Hello and welcome to episode two of the Virgin Disruptors podcast. I'm Holly Ransom and I'm excited to introduce another instalment in this series of talks focusing on change makers in the world of business and beyond. Disruption is really about challenging the status quo. It's anybody that's making change because when you make change, there's always someone who benefits from that same, someone who's used to it, someone who that's a daily part of their life. So when you challenge that status quo, you're disrupting somebody and that's what a true disruptor does. Disruption is the key word here as we discuss the art of shaking things up. And in today's episode, we welcome someone who's no stranger to that concept, Matt Wolliott, a serial entrepreneur and the head of growth ventures at Microsoft. As you'll hear, Matt is an expert when it comes to behavioural change and believes that understanding our own inhibitions and learning how to disrupt those feelings can help make a huge step in advancing a career or an idea. One of Matt's big focuses has been on addressing the gender gap, and through a startup called Get Raised, Matt and his team have been helping women across the world to address this inhibiting behaviour, giving them the tools they need to ask for a pay rise. 70% of the women that used Get Raised services got a raise, and the company has collectively helped women earn over $2.3 billion more. For me, Matt's talk was a really fascinating understanding that often we can want a different reality or want a situation to be a particular way, but it's our lack of understanding about inhibiting and encouraging behaviours that means we never get the result that we're after. He spoke at length about the importance of being the behavioural change that we want to see in the world. So without further ado, Matt Wolliott at Virgin Disruptors. Let me talk to you about M&Ms. Why do we eat M&Ms? Sorry, there are no rhetorical questions in my talks. Why do we eat M&Ms? Because they taste good, right? They taste good. Chocolate tastes good. That's a strong promoting pressure. And M&M's knows this. That's why there's over 30 flavors. They're like running out of bag colors because they keep coming up with something new, right? They know taste is an important part of why we eat M&M's. Why else do we eat M&M's? They're pretty. That's a great one. And I'm going to come back to fun in a second. They're pretty. We are actually aesthetically attracted to M&M's. I know being a psychologist is basically just about screwing with people all the time. So, if I give you a bowl of M&M's that's just one color, you actually consume fewer M&M's than if I gave you the entire color mix. We have this, this primal urge towards those nice colors. It's why when I eat Smarties, I'm like, what's wrong with these colors? These are weird, man. I don't know what's going on. As a matter of fact, we used to have two colors of brown in M&M's. We had like a lovely chocolate brown, and then we had kind of a weird like poop brown color. And they wisely got rid of that color, and they ran a national marketing campaign to figure out what the next calendar color would be. I think more people actually voted for, for M&M colors than sometimes vote in like state and, and local elections, right? This is an incredibly important topic. There's a lovely clip of a nightly news anchor sort of, you know, uh, the Iraq war, and then the new color, it's blue, it's blue, right? It's a national headline-making news. Why else do we eat M&Ms? You talked about fun. Fun is an incredibly important aspect of M&Ms, right? Candy, it's evocative, it's about our childhood, there's a sense of nostalgia, right? They have these appropriate moments in the world, and I'm going to come back to that later again. There's another one that many people often leave out because it seems like a reason not to eat M&Ms, and that's calories. Now look, I'm, I've got an 11-month-old, this is getting bigger every day, right? Like, calories seems like a bad reason to eat M&Ms, but it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon right now, right? We had a tea break for a reason, right? Your body, glycemic test goes down, you're ready for some more glucose, and you start to munch on those M&Ms. Now, how many people woke up this morning and immediately started eating M&Ms? 
but why not? You just told me that they're delicious and they're beautiful and they're fun and they have calories, which we need first thing in the morning. Well, there's these inhibiting pressures. Why aren't people eating M&Ms first thing in the morning? Calories is one. Calories is one. Time of day is one. They don't, they're not a breakfast food. M&Ms have an appropriateness, right? They're fun, and that can be a promoting pressure, but they're not for all times. If you really want to think about this, think about Valentine's Day, right? I don't romance my wife by being like, beautiful candles, filet mignon, a little red wine, and for dessert, M&Ms. That's not the narrative, right? That's a lint moment. That's a dark chocolate moment. That's a, that's a different kind of a moment. So one of the strong inhibiting pressures can be this sense of appropriateness. When brand works, when is an okay time to do this thing? One of the reasons you don't eat M&Ms first thing in the morning, they're probably not on your bedside table. Availability is a key inhibiting pressure. It's a key component to why we don't eat them, right? And the last one that sometimes people forget is cost. M&Ms aren't free. Now, for most of the people in the room, the cost of M&Ms is probably somewhat trivial, but you know, think about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We're talking about the story of a boy who celebrates because he gets a chocolate bar once a year. And unfortunately, this is the reality for many people in the world today. Cost is a powerful inhibiting pressure. Now, why am I yammering on to you about promoting pressures and inhibiting pressures? It's because I think that everybody in this room today is concerned with behavior change. When we talk about disruption, when we talk about improving the world that we live in, behavior change is really what we're all trying to do. And so I want to show you that by thinking about promoting and inhibiting pressures, you can change people's behavior. Now, as some of you may have already discovered, there are M&Ms underneath most of your chairs, right? I can control your behavior right now. I can make you eat M&Ms just by making them more available. They're not any more delicious or beautiful. I haven't changed the colors or the flavors. All I've done is make them available to you. And you are free to start eating them at any time, by the way, since it is mid-afternoon, we all need a little caloric piece. I don't mind, right? But you can get to this place where you can change behavior. Take a second, get your M&Ms. I'll wait. All right. I have limited time, we're getting back to it. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, Did you? I bought a giant box from the US and believe me, the security people were very concerned. They're like, what's going on with these like 600 packets of M&Ms right now? Are they dipped in acid? Is this new, some new drug smuggling we've never seen? Nobody does this. All right, so the reason I put M&Ms underneath your chair is I want to show you how trivial changing behavior really is. When we start to think constructively about pressures, I guarantee you there's a, a room at Mars right now where people are dreaming up the next flavor of M&Ms, and they're going to spend millions of dollars doing it. They're going to launch, you know, it's going to take marketing, they're going to have to test them on people, they have to come up with formulation people like, they have to make sure they don't kill people, they've got to come up with a new bag color, which is really hard at this point, right? They're spending millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to launch this next flavor of M&M. What if they took that same money or a fraction of that money, and just said, I am going to make M&Ms available everywhere all the time. We need to start getting radically reframing the way that we think about behavior change in the world, and the way that those of us in this room designs products and services and programs that change those behaviors. I want to talk a little bit about a, a, a topic that's really near and dear to my heart, um, gender equity. I love Cheryl, she's great, and, and I do think that women need to lean in, it is important, but do we seriously think that the problem of why we still have a gender wage gap is because women don't want more money? 
right? It's not a promoting pressure problem. Women in this room, is there anybody in here? Clap for me if you don't want more money, if you wouldn't like to be paid equally to your male counterparts. Ah, oh, resounding silence, right? Except for the sound of M&Ms, right? It's not a promoting pressure problem, it's an inhibiting pressure problem. Let me tell you about a, a very simple tweak we did. A couple years ago, I built a free tool called Get Raised. You come in, you tell me what you do, where you work, how much you make, I'll tell you if you're underpaid. Answer a few more questions, I'll generate a letter that you can give to your boss asking for a raise. It's a free tool. 70% of the women that hand in this, this letter get a raise. The average raise is $7,000. We've helped women earn $2.3 billion in raises. Just by rem <laughs> You're clapping for the wrong thing. That clap should really for be for all of the women who continue to put up with the men in this room every day, that women haven't revolted over the bullshit that you all have to go through is amazing to me. You're listening to the Virgin Disruptors podcast, featuring Matt Wolliott, Microsoft's head of growth ventures and behavioral change expert. If I could disrupt one thing, gender wage. I think the gender wage gap is ridiculous that it's stuck around as long as it has. We haven't made meaningful progress in 30 years, despite its acknowledgement. So I think there are lots of big things I would love to change in the world, but from everything we know, if you employ women, you pay them fairly, you promote them fairly, you allow them to succeed, it has a cascading effect on you know, access to education, poverty, sort of you know, national GDPs change. Like, I think more fully encompassing sort of women and other sorts of underrepresented groups into the workplace is one of the key tenets that we need to do in order to achieve the next level of financial prosperity that brings everybody up. Uh, and that is gonna hurt. For some men who are going to get displaced, it's going to hurt for white men like me that you know are going to get displaced. But I think that uh, can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. So why are more people disruptive? I think that you know I talked on stage about promoting pressures and inhibiting pressures, reasons to do something and reasons not to do something. The naive theory I think a lot of people have is that it's a promoting pressure problem, that people don't want to disrupt, and that's true to an extent, but I think a lot of it is about inhibiting pressures. People feel very restricted from disrupting, whether or not that's an actual reality. I think people can feel like they aren't empowered to actually make any change. And so the key for people who, are, who want to create disruption, who want us to change, who want us to push forward is to create systems that allow for that change, right? This has been why inclusion is so important, right? If we don't make an inclusive society that allows other people across the spectrum to push for the changes that they want, to be active in that behavior change, to become disruptors, then we stagnate and we don't get the change that we want. Who is my ultimate disruptor? Wow. <laughs> that is a hard question. You know, there's a million people that sort of flit through my mind. And the funny part is, I'm... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm going to say the every person. So it's not some specific famous bearded you know, entrepreneur of, of indeterminate age. Uh, I won't say who, right? It's, it's really the small disruptions that get me. It's the janitor that decides to mop a little bit differently, right? Or to, to, to change protocol in a way that affects other people and helps other people. It's all of those tiny daily changes. Maybe it's my mom. My mom's a nurse, right? Like, you know, it's all of the on-the-fly decisions. I think a lot of disruption isn't this really conscious, big, deliberate with balloons and, you know, millions of dollars of marketing behind it kind of disruption. It's just the little tiny things that people do every day to make things better. It's the iterative process of improving the world and changing. And sometimes it is big. Sometimes it comes about with violence and, and other things. You know, we're struggling right now with race in the United States where I'm from, you know. I, I think sometimes disruption is sort of a upsetting process and there has to be room for that. Matt Walliot, serial entrepreneur and head of growth ventures at Microsoft. I found Matt to be one of the most engaging speakers across the course of the day. His presence on stage, and you can hear it over the airwaves, is absolutely palpable. His energy and enthusiasm for what he talks about is incredible. But the biggest thing for me was how he broke down this difficulty of disrupting and driving change into that really basic point around understanding the behaviour that we seek to influence and mapping out a plan for how we go about doing that. Don't forget, you can find out more about Virgin Disruptors at virgin.com and you can join the discussion on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Virgin Disruptors. But right now, let's head back to the stage. When I first came to Microsoft, they noticed, hey, kids in schools aren't searching nearly as much as we would think they are. Like, what's going on? And the marketing camp department had a big campaign they had planned around creativity. The problem must clearly be that kids aren't curious enough. So we're just going like, to find a way to make them more curious, and then that'll drive up search behavior in schools. So I said, wait a second. Let's just go into a classroom. And anybody in here that's ever been in a classroom will tell you, kids have all the curiosity they need, right? We do not need to teach kids to be curious. They already have that. What we need to do is get out of their way. When you look in a classroom, the reason kids aren't searching is because of three very simple things. Teachers are concerned about adult content, they're concerned about privacy, and they're concerned about ads. So what did we do? We made an ad-free, safe, private version of Bing. Just by removing those three inhibiting pressures, you see 40% increases in the number of searches that people do at school and 15% increases at home because we got radically, radically different about how we thought about the problem, because we mapped out the pressures. So many examples of this have come up today. It was interesting, the Virgin Sport folks came up, they talked about why we don't participate in physical activity, right? And they said, they listed all these barriers and they said, hey, we're gonna fix it with fun. Now, fun is a strong promoting pressure and that has a good chance of working, but let's talk about the inhibiting pressures. My favorite health company is a company called Peloton. What do they do? They take the flywheel experience, 
They put it in your home. It's a big bike with a big screen that you can, you know, in the privacy of your own home, take a flywheel class at any time. They have live classes and on-demand classes. That simple tweak is a difference between me going to the gym and not going to the gym. I have an 11-month-old, right? That I have an hour to, like, get suited up and, like, go off to somewhere and, like, deal with everybody else waiting in line and checking in and all these other things. That's not going to happen. But if I can take a 15-minute class while he's sleeping at home, that works. Just removing that inhibiting pressure. You don't have to make me want it. I already want it. Most of the time, we want to do the right thing. The problem is the inhibiting pressure is in our way. We can flip it as well. There are behaviors we want to extinguish in the world. One of the greatest public health victories is smoking. You go from a time in the mid-40s and 50s where almost every adult American smokes to a time now when very, very few do. How did we go about beating smoking? Well, the first thing they did was the natural thing. It's a thing all of us do when we think about we want something to happen less. We punish, right? We said, all right, we're going to make these things incredibly expensive. If you go to New York and buy a pack of cigarettes, oh, sorry, Siggies, you Brits, right? If I go to New York and I buy a pack of Siggies, right, the taxes are almost as high as the cost of the cigarettes themselves. Then we put really big warnings on them and said, you're going to die if you smoke these, you know that, right? Strong inhibiting pressure, health and cost, but it wasn't enough. What really moved the needle on smoking? Banning advertising. We don't, it's one of the few products that we do not allow people to advertise in magazines, on TV, in movies. A bunch of adult Americans who got elected to public office, serious people, got around and made a law about cartoon characters. They said, you're not allowed to use cartoon characters to advertise cigarettes to children because we know that works. And when you remove those promoting pressures, those reasons to do it in the first place, you get serious behavior change. So, take a breath. I know it's the end of a long day. I want to send you away with a challenge. I want you to go to work tomorrow and think about the behavior change you want to see in the world. Write it out, get on a whiteboard, put up a promoting pressure arrow, an inhibiting pressure arrow, and get serious about thinking about the pressures that are at play in the world. Because you can design with them in mind. We talked a lot today about democratizing various things. You just talked about democratizing access to performance-enhancing exercises. I think that's great. What I want to try and do is democratize behavior change. Right now, behavior change sits at this nexus, right, where the people in power have the biggest budgets, and therefore they win. What I want to tell you is that behavior change, this is our guerrilla warfare. If we can empower each and every person in our organizations, in our businesses, in our nonprofits, in our lives, to hack on behavior change with us, to learn the basics of promoting and inhibiting pressure and, and social psychology, we can actually produce the large-scale behavior change that we wanted in the world. Remember, $2.3 billion in wage rages just for making it a little easier for people to ask and to ask in the right way. I want to address something that was said earlier today about people being born disruptors. So, if people are born disruptors, then behavior change doesn't matter. We're just born the way we are. But if that's true, and if we say, well, look at these disruptive you know, CEOs of companies, well, it turns out most of those CEOs are white males. So if you're telling me people are born to be disruptors, what you're telling me is that somehow white males come into this world ready to run things. And I don't believe that, and I don't think you believe that.
we have to collectively recognize that the way things are has to do with systemic pressure, and that we can affect those systemic pressures. We need to turn up the inhibiting pressure on racism and sexism and nationalism. We need to remove barriers to better behavior. We need to make it easy to reduce, reuse, and recycle. We need to make it easy to treat people equitably. We need to make it easy for women to ask for raises, to young people to ask for opportunities, and for everyone in this room to make their world better. So I want you to go home and write an up arrow and a down arrow, and think about the behaviors you want to change. And don't forget to enjoy the M&Ms. Thank you. Matt Wolliott from Microsoft, speaking at the recent Virgin Disruptors event in London. A massive thanks to Matt and to the huge audience who came out to listen to him. Remember, you too can join the discussion. Use the hashtag Virgin Disruptors to let us know what you thought and whether you're going to put any of Matt's ideas into practice yourself. I know for me, the piece around unpacking behaviour that we need to change is such a powerful idea. My organisation works a lot with corporations, governments and elite sporting organisations seeking to do exactly that. And it's so often that we have a great idea or a genius strategy and we can't work out why the dots won't join to make it our reality. Matt's talk, I think, gave us really pragmatic steps to understand what it is that we need to spend time focusing on in order to increase our speed to success, but also the significance and size of our impact. Just time to mention that coming up in the next Virgin Disruptors podcast, we'll be featuring Nizreen Shoker, one of the most celebrated entrepreneurs in the Arab world and president of Virgin Megastores in the Middle East and Northern Africa. We'll give you a little taster from our conversation with her at the end of the show here. Until then, you can also head to virgin.com for more entrepreneurial articles and podcasts. The Virgin Disruptors podcast was a PixiU production. For now, from me, Holly Ransom, goodbye. More often than not, disruption has backfired, but it's that J-curve. So you go through a bit of a period where you're just kind of like watching and listening and learning, and then you decide you're going to make some changes, and then you fall off a cliff. Literally. And everyone's kind of watching, saying, what have they done? Things used to be okay before. Why are they changing things? And then just as you think that's it, it's the end, it's failed, it starts moving up and you start seeing the successes appear and everybody's watching. It's really, really important to publicize those successes. But it goes through that curve uh, more often than not. And it's scary. <laughs> I talked about unconsumption in my speech and it's something I really believe in. As I see more and more dollar-type stores or you know, discount retailers winning the market share, I worry because, yes, the end consumer is benefiting, but someone is paying the price in the supply chain. And that's one thing that I'd love to be part of in the next phase of disruption. I do want to be able to work hard on finding a business model that allows for unconsumption without really affecting the entire profitability of the supply chain. It might shift. You might realize that the workers are going to make more money, but I think ultimately we all benefit if, um, if everyone's better off. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. 
With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit